Well, in, in my most recent teaching series with you, I have had you turn to some passages in the Bible that are kind of difficult to find because they were deep in the battles of the Old Testament, right? We were in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and Isaiah and places like that. And so I'm going to give you a break today, and I'm going to send you to a passage that might be a little bit easier to find. Please turn to Genesis 1. Please turn to Genesis 1. We're going to be reading through, in a few minutes, the first few verses of the Bible. Don and I got to spend a couple of wonderful days uh, at the beach early last week, and um, it was great. The weather was great. Um, the waves were pretty good. It was a really good time. The, the only challenge that we had on the beach was the wind. Um, the wind was pretty intense that week. And in fact, at the wedding, the wind was kind of a challenge too. And if you see some of the pictures, you will see you know, some people's hair stri- standing straight up and that sort of thing. But, but during the day, um, of course, Don and I had a couple of umbrellas that we had drilled into the sand. Um, but as the wind would shift and get stronger, much stronger in the afternoons, we found ourselves expending more and more energy and effort shoring up the foundations of our little homemade umbrella stands, mostly made out of dirt, you know, to make sure that these umbrellas stayed anchored in the sand because we saw them starting to work their way out and we saw some other people uh, lose theirs. And when those umbrellas come loose, they can be very dangerous. And uh, it's, it's critically important to keep those umbrellas anchored firmly into the sand. We know that. But as I thought about that, and I thought about some of the things that I was going to be sharing with you over the next few weeks, it reminded me that as followers of Jesus Christ, it is also critically important for us to keep our faith firmly anchored in its foundation. We're going to be starting a new series today. I'm going to just call either Foundations, or I may decide to call it Strengthening the Foundations. I don't know. That slide looks pretty good, so we may stay with that. But what we're going to be doing is looking at some very, very, we're going to be asking some very simple and foundational questions. Uh, Questions like, who is God? Uh, What is man? What is humanity? Uh, What is law? Is there right and wrong? What is sin? What is grace? What is our purpose as people? What are we doing here? How are we supposed to be relating to God and to the world and to each other? As I said, these are very basic questions. Many of them are covered here in the book of Genesis. And and I don't think over the next few weeks that I'm going to be really teaching you a whole lot that's brand new to you. I think it's it's stuff that you probably are very familiar with. There will be some teaching. There will be some theology over the next few weeks, but for the most part, it's not going to be new information. It's going to be things you have heard before. Still, you may find that lately you've had some doubt or uncertainty creeping in about these things, or you may know these basic truths well enough, but maybe you've kind of lost track of the implications of what these things mean for your life. How how are these basic truths supposed to affect the way that, that we live? And so I really have three purposes for this series. Uh, the first one is, you know, thinking about that umbrella stand, I, 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 I want to shore up our faith. I want to firmly anchor our faith in areas where maybe the church with a capital C has been going a little bit wobbly in the last few years. Our faith in Jesus is actually founded on some very basic truths that go all the way back to Genesis, all the way back really to the time of creation. And if we lose track of these things, our faith is going to become weak, it's going to become less vital, and it's going to be hard for us to keep growing in Jesus and hard for us to meaningly share Christ with the people around us. The second reason I want to do this is is to help us get an understanding 
really of the whole Bible, to help us get a better understanding of how it fits together. The first few chapters of Genesis in particular are absolutely critical to an understanding of the rest of history, uh, the rest of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. And we have to understand these foundational ideas in Genesis if we're ever going to get the, the big picture of the Bible and kind of where it's going from beginning to end and to be able to put all the pieces together in the places where they go. So that's pretty important. It's going to help us to really get the most out of reading God's Word and discussing it and studying it. But the third reason that I want to talk about these basic things has to do with really where we're at right now as a culture. You know as well as I do that, that the world today, the world in which our young people are growing up is an increasingly dark place. It's a place of spiritual confusion. It's a place of just purposelessness and aimlessness. It's a place of great moral chaos. And it's a, it's, it's a place of all kinds of personal and interpersonal brokenness. And when you think about some of the challenges that our kids and grandkids are dealing with today, um, some of the ideas that they are consuming today from the dominant culture, you may feel like the umbrella has already blown out of the sand, you know, a long time ago. And now what you're doing as parents and grandparents, and as we're, we're, we're actually, you know, chasing the umbrella down the beach, trying to catch it, so maybe we can grab it and stick it back in the sand and, and give our, uh, somehow re-anchor our young people in a godly foundation. Well, one of the first steps for that to happen is for us to really understand where those godly foundations are laid and identify the weak areas in our faith and the cracks in our own foundation, and then maybe we'll be able to help others recover their anchor, or better yet, not to lose their anchor in the first place. That's the idea. So for today, let me just start at the beginning, as Julie Andrews once said, a very good place to start. Genesis chapter 1, just verses 1 through 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Today, just for today, my main goal with you today is, is usually when I think about preaching and talk to people about what, why, why we preach sermons, it's often to change, change people's beliefs, to change people's attitudes, to change people's feelings, to change people's behavior, certainly. And I hope some of that happens. It should. But my main goal today, the more I think about it, is really more simple and at the same time more ambitious than that. When you leave here today, I want you to love and to appreciate and to worship our God more. I want you to praise him for who he is and for what he's done. So that's going to be the idea. I hope you walk away with all those things, but I hope when you leave today you find yourself able to worship God better because you understand a little bit more about how worthy of praise he is. From this short passage, what I want to do is I just want to make three observations about God and, um, and then look back at what those observations will mean for us. And this is one of those sermons that started out as a one-week sermon and it ended up as a two-week sermon. So um, I can either go until one o'clock or we can split this in half. What, what I think we'll do is the half thing. And so you're, today, today you're going to get one point. This is a one-point sermon, um, but it's a pretty big point. And, and the point I want to make here, let's call it this the uniqueness of God. 
the uniqueness of God. There is one God. God is absolutely unique. There is nobody or nothing that is anything at all like him. The Bible, the Bible as we just read in, in Genesis 1 here, does not start out by introducing us to God or trying to prove that he exists. There are a number of different proofs for the existence of God. You may be familiar with some of them. You may have talked about them. You may have even looked at them recently um, in, in Sunday school class with the apologetics class that Wes taught. But, but, the, but as much as there are these proofs for God's existence, the Bible doesn't really go there. Not really. It talks, about, it talks about how you do have to believe that God exists in Hebrews 11, for instance, in order to please him, to believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who are seeking him. Uh, the Bible does say in the Psalms that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But the Bible doesn't really get into the proofs. Rather, it just assumes that God exists. He's just there. And if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. When you read Romeo and Juliet, and if you're going into ninth grade, you will, it doesn't start by making an argument for the existence of William Shakespeare, right? Of course the author is there. Otherwise, where did this play come from? It didn't write itself, right? Somebody from outside the play had to write it. Notice Notice this, that while the first acts of creation here take place at a time that's called in the beginning, God is already present. He's already on the scene. He's he's already there, which means that he was there before the beginning. Isn't that interesting? If you had a time machine that could take you to any moment in time, you would never find a time when God was not there. And you could never see God being brought into existence because that never had to happen. God has no beginning. No one created God. Your kids one day will ask you that. If God created everything, who created God? The answer is no one. He didn't have to be created. God exists before all time and outside of time. This is one reason that we don't start out with some comment here about the existence of God or proving it. The other reason that the Bible doesn't have to tell us that God exists is because we already know that God exists. We do. Or at least we did at some point. You say, well, not everybody. What about atheists? Atheists don't know that God exists. Well, according to Romans 1, actually they do. It says there that that what humanity has done as it has fallen into evil is to suppress the knowledge of God, to suppress the knowledge of the truth in unrighteousness. So what happened was we had it, but then we suppressed it. So the knowledge that God exists is not something that people start out not having, but then have to get. The knowledge that God exists is something that we start out having, and then we have to unlearn it. And the decision that many people make, and it is a decision to reject the existence of God, can be found in in a lot of areas. It can be found in an intellectual pride. People decide they just want to be smarter than God. It can be found in in just willfulness. People just want to be their own God and decide what to do with their own life. Or it could also be founded in pain. People who, who abandon their belief in God because of something horrible that has happened in their life that they can't square with the existence of a good and loving God. And so we have to be careful here. As we talk to those who say they don't believe in God, we don't need to be hammering on people for their pride and their rebellion when sometimes what they really need is for us to come in and share their pain. 
But we do need to admit that either way, their atheism was a choice. It was a choice. The president of the Christian Missionary Alliance, a guy by the name of Dr. John Stumbo, wrote a book recently, a very little book. Here it is. It's called uh, God in You, A Conversation. And it's actually even littler than you think because there's only about one sentence on each page. So it takes about 15 minutes to read this book. It's a great introduction to, to who God is. Uh, he wrote this, and we actually bought about 50 copies of it uh, at First Alliance, and we actually gave a copy to every family that lives over in, in Raven Ridge, a new housing development around the corner there. Uh, but, I, but I love the way the book starts. Let me just read you the first few pages. Um, here's how it starts. I am aware that God exists. I believe that you are too. Deep down, perhaps buried under a lifetime of pain and unanswered questions, somewhere within your soul, you know there is a God. I'm not going to try to prove to you that he exists. I don't think I have to. I think you already know. You may be ignoring him or running from him. You may love him or hate him. You may think he's wonderful or frightful. You may not know what to think of him, or you may not think of him at all. But of this you can be sure. God exists. He's real. I think uh, Dr. Stumbo was on to something here. This is what's going on in people's hearts. Maybe way down deep, but at some level, they have to come to terms with something they know to be true, that God is real. We know that God exists, and so we are introduced to him really by our most basic relationship to him, which is that of creature to creator. God is, God is the creator God, and ultimately then he's our creator. And, and again, God is unique. This is very important. God is unique in that he is in no way part of his creation. God is not part of creation. He is outside of creation. When it says God created the heavens and the earth, that heavens and the earth, that's biblical shorthand for everything in the physical universe. And by the way, that's also true of the spiritual universe, including the angels. Psalm 148.5 is a call for all of creation to praise the Lord. And it says, why do they praise them? For at his command, they were created. And verse 2 of that psalm tells us that creation includes the angels. So the angels were also created by God. One thing that that means for sure is that there is not, as some people would suppose, there is not a good God and an evil God. Or a yin and a yang. Satan is a created being. God created him along with all the other angels. Satan is in no way equal to God or anywhere near being on God's level. Now this is great news. But it also presents a challenge for us because we need to find a way to come to terms with the existence of evil, which is beyond the scope of today's message. But the answer to that is not that there are two opposing gods, one good and one evil, and they're battling it out. There is one God. There is one God existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he stands apart from his creation. He is not part of it. I mention this because the Son and the Spirit being God, also were not created. We see in, in the verses we read here that the Spirit of God was present at creation, hovering over the, the surface of the water. And in John chapter 1, we find out that Jesus was also there. The Son of God was there at creation. There he's called the Word. But we find out, in fact, that without Jesus, nothing was made that was made. And he certainly didn't make himself. 
So that means he wasn't made. QED, drop the mic, Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator God. Well, then you might say, well, then who actually created the universe? Was it God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit? Who did it? Well, who built your house? The architect, the contractor, or the guys who actually pounded the nails? In a way, you can make a case, right, for any and all of them as the builder. Or maybe you built your house because you got the idea. Or maybe the bank built your house because they gave you the money. But so it is with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The pattern is this, that in creation, like in God's other actions, things happen from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. But there is one God. There is one creator. In fact, the Hebrew word bara, that means the verb that means to create, in the form that is found here in Genesis, only takes one subject throughout the entire Bible. The only person ever said to create anything in the absolute sense of the word is God. You never find it with anybody else. Man doesn't create. You and I can't create things. We don't create anything. We can move things around. We can build cities and we can write symphonies. We can even fool around with genetics and we can, we can develop new breeds of dogs and new hybrids of roses and things like that, but, but we're not really creating. We're merely taking the brains and the bodies that God has supplied and we're applying them to the rules of, of mechanics and electromagnetism and acoustics and genetics that God has created. We're not creating. We're just manipulating that which God has already made and which he owns. Yes, and which he owns You see, God being the creator of all things means that he is also the owner of all things. God owns everything. Let's say that one day you had some time on your hands, and so you got a huge box of dominoes, and you set up a huge domino chain that snaked all the way through like three rooms of your house. It took you like six or eight hours to set this thing up, okay? So this is a big deal. And, and let's say that, that you were just had finished the thing and you were looking at it and wondering what to do with it, and then your friend came in the door and said, wow, look at that awesome domino set up. That must have taken like hours. And then he proceeded to push down the first domino, sending the whole thing to the ground over the course of 45 agonizing seconds. Why is that person now your former friend? What... what Why was that such a terrible offense? Well, because that domino chain was your creation. It was your. You conceived of it. You planned it. You built it. You spent all that time on it. And because of that, the natural assumption is that you are its owner. It is up to you to decide when and if to knock it down. It is your prerogative when and how to dispose of it, and no one else's. This is the relationship between God, the creator, and his creation. As its inventor and originator, he has absolute authority over it and absolute privileges when it comes to deciding what to do with it. It is his. It is his. As Paul says in Romans, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Or in Colossians, talking about Jesus, for by him were all things created that are on heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. For him. This is particularly bothersome to us human beings today to consider that we are not ultimately the owner of any of the things that we supposedly own. 
We aren't. All of our, all of our money, all of our material possessions, all of our real estate, ultimately, even our own bodies and our own lives are not ours to do with as we please. We belong to God whether we admit it or not. Romeo and Juliet really have no right to protest to Shakespeare about the plot of the play they find themselves written into. And they might be tempted to complain, believe me, so ninth graders, spoiler alert, okay, it doesn't end happy. <laughs> and, and Juliet does complain. She's like, why, Romeo, why are you Romeo? Why did you have to be Romeo of all people? You know, well, the reason Romeo is Romeo is that the creator, Shakespeare, made him that way and had every right to do so. Can the clay say to the potter, why did you make me this way? That's how Paul says in Romans 9. And of course, this totally flies in the face of today's prevailing philosophy, which is that of the autonomous self, which just says this, I get to decide who I am and what I am. I have the right and responsibility to determine not only the rules of my own life, but I get to determine my very identity. You can't make me, you can't make me. I am who I say I am, right? You don't own me. That's, that's the song, that's, that's the song they're singing today. So that song, when we sing it a little differently, it's pretty radical. I am who I say I am. That comes out most obviously today in matters of sex and gender, but it really applies to all of life. I am who I say I am. Now you can take that position if you want to, but you cannot square it with what the Bible says about God and creation. You can't have it both ways. You cannot retain autonomy over your own life and claim to be a Christian. If you're going to say you believe the Bible, you're going to have to give up on the idea of defining yourself or even owning yourself. And you're going to have to hope like crazy. You're going to have to hope like crazy that this God, this creator who made you and who has absolute authority over you and over the rest of creation, you better hope that that God doesn't turn out to be some kind of arbitrary or random or careless or cruel person. It would be really good if that creator turned out to be a good God, wouldn't it? Yeah. That would be good. If he was like a caring God, wouldn't that be good? If he was even a loving God, that would be even better. And it would be even better if that God took an interest in you and made you some promises. He wouldn't have to. But wouldn't it be cool if he did? Wouldn't that God be doubly worthy of worship? Because then he would be more than just a creator. And then, what if that God, what if that creator actually willingly entered into and experienced the intense pain that actually drives some people to abandon their belief in him? What if he went through all that? Well, that would be almost unthinkable, wouldn't it? The praise that we would have to give to a God like that would have to be like through the roof, wouldn't it? Just one more observation to make here. The Bible says in Romans 4 that God has the power to call things into existence that don't presently exist. And in Hebrews 11 it says that God made everything that can be seen from that which cannot be seen. The theologians have a term for this. They call it creation ex nihilo or creation from nothing. Creation from nothing. This is the best way to say it. The Bible asserts that God when he created the universe, did not use any pre-existing materials. He didn't have anything to work with. He simply willed it into being by his word. It's pretty amazing. But why is that so important for us to understand? Well, today, there are many belief systems, 
particularly some from the Eastern religions, but also some of the pagan and New Age derivatives that are here now and very popular in the West. And this idea was very popular in New Testament times too, in which God, not having any pre-existing material to use for creation, what he did was he just used himself because he was in existence. And so what he did was, what turned, it turns out that all of nature is really kind of an expression of God or in the, the, the word they use is an emanation of God, that God emanated things. And at some point, God used part of himself to form the material world, the stars. He put part of himself into the planets and then into the water and the air and the plants and the trees and the animals and then us. And so ultimately, everything in the universe is made out of the same stuff, and that's the stuff of God. And so in this view, salvation happens one day when all of creation is reabsorbed back into the divine. Meanwhile, there's a little bit of God in everything. I can remember singing a song back in the 1980s, way back when, in the early 80s, and if you saw the movie Fame, you heard this song back then. I sing the body electric. I celebrate the me yet to come. I toast to my own reunion when I become one with the sun. And I look back on Venus, I look back on Mars, and I burn with the fire of 10 million stars. And in time and in time, we will all be stars. That's what our high school chorus sang. This kind of paganism, which is really pantheism, everything is God, has grown a lot more popular in the last 40 years. So, and you can kind of see why. Because God, in this view, has more or less dissolved himself into creation. And in doing so, he has become impersonal. And coincidentally, and lucky for us, he also became very non-judgmental when that happened, right? I mean, why would I take orders from a tree? But on the other hand, if there is any such thing as sin, if we can even call it that, what it must be is a sin against creation itself. And so to harm the environment becomes the greatest of all transgressions, not for practical reasons, but for religious reasons, because nature is now the only God we have left. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see that, yes, we do have a responsibility. We have a very serious and God-given responsibility to protect our environment, but for a very different reason, a different reason. Meanwhile, as we said, the Bible right here in the first verse makes a very clear distinction between God and creation. God is absolutely unique. The greatest, the greatest division the greatest distance, if you will, both in quality and in quantity, both in quality of things and in, in magnitude or amount, the greatest division in all of reality is not between living and non-living things. It is not between humans and animals. It is not between angels and humans. It isn't even between spirit and matter. The greatest division in all of reality is the vast gulf between God and everything else. That's the biggest division. But now think, as we close, what does that mean when it comes to Jesus and who he is? I'll tell you one thing that it means. For one thing, it means the mystery of the incarnation is a lot more amazing than you ever thought it was. That the creator, this creator, who is so far above, so far apart, so different, so unique, in order to save broken and rebellious human beings would actually enter his own creation. 
But that's not all. There's another mystery, maybe even a greater one. Because 2 Corinthians 5 tells us this, that when we come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior and are forgiven of our sin through his death on the cross, that we have become, what, anybody know? A new creation. A new creation. If this is true, then becoming a Christian is not like, you know, turning over a new leaf. It's not committing to be a better person or or promising to make a change in your life, no matter how radical that change might be. No, becoming a Christian is a divine miracle. It is something that happens inside of us that is on par with what God did in Genesis 1. And the Greek word, just like the Hebrew word for creation here, is something only God can do. And the word new doesn't just mean more recent, like the newest one. No, it means new in quality, new in kind, which means you become a whole different person person by the power of God through his Holy Spirit. All things have become new, it says in the next phrase. There is no sin that is not forgiven for those who are in Christ. There is no relationship that is not affected. There is no part of your life that remains untouched. There is no brokenness in your life that can't be healed. It can all be made new. The creator himself has been turned loose in your life to change everything about you and to bring to life everything that had died. That's what's going on. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what it says one chapter earlier. So this God, who stands infinitely above us, and infinitely above all of creation, who exists outside of time and space, who created all that exists, the same God has invaded your space, and he wants you to worship him. Now, if you saw him in all his glory, you wouldn't be able to worship him, because you would be obliterated by his presence. But in the face of Jesus Christ, God, who somehow became man, He is showing you the light of the knowledge of his glory and inviting you not only to worship him, but also to trust in him and to become part of his family. Would you worship a God like that? Let's pray. Lord, the fact that we can even call you Lord, the fact that we can call you Father, the fact that we can even talk to you is amazing. The fact that you're listening to us right now is is an act of infinite mercy, and it amazes us, Lord, when we really think about it, that we can have an audience with you. When we think about how vast you are, when we think about how glorious and, and beautiful you are, when we think about how wise and ingenious you are, when we think about how infinitely above us you are, and, and yet here we are, Lord. And we want to praise you. Not only have you made us, but you've redeemed us. Not only have you made us part of your creation, but you in some mysterious way entered your own creation in order to save us when we'd gone astray. And you suffered for us in Jesus Christ and you died for us and you rose again for us. Lord, there is nothing we can do or say that even remotely approaches praise worthy of what you have done for us or or who you are even and yet lord you invite us to do so and so as your people we come to you humbly and in amazement and we worship you we praise you and we thank you
in Jesus' name.